Okay, let's turn to it's one of those nights I hate to break things up. But let's turn to Romans, Romans chapter 1 and 16. We'll continue our pincer movement. Don't forget to keep bringing, what, what's the date now? It's the 6th. I have a note up here that says, please announce my birthday, Pastor Brian Messick. It is his birthday, isn't it? Is it his birthday? That's right. I should remember he's my illegitimate son. Um, (laughs) How old are you? Never mind. Now, through December 15th, we're still collecting toys for the Salvation Army. And I know they have a lot of gratitude for what you've done in the years past. And they've expressed it. So keep it coming. And let this be a proof of the love of God being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Also, be aware, there will be a Sunday School Volunteer Christmas Luncheon on Sunday, December 10th. And you will be very sad if you never volunteered as a Sunday school volunteer because it's going to be the event of the season. For all Sunday school volunteers, that's this Sunday, coming Sunday, and their families, all volunteers that plan on attending the luncheon are asked to please sign up. And I believe there's still time to sign up. So... Romans the Epistle, this is our eighth installment. My new plan is, my new rationale for doing this study, is what if there was a holocaust and everything burned up in the world, in this generation, except this study, except these notes. And so I'm being very careful. I also want to remind you before we get started that this, I reserve the right as a, a preacher with a moving viewpoint. Now, I'm not moving away from any of the viewpoints of our the Trinitarian God, of the finished work of Christ, of the salvific doctrines that we've cherished for 30 years, but there's times when you move and change a little bit here and there as you learn. Now, that's the price you pay if you're going to keep on studying. If you don't want to keep on studying... You can be the pastor that has a file cabinet full of sermons and you just pull one out. Oh, it's Christmas. Let's pull this one out. But that's not the way it is. So have, I'm, I, I'm grateful for your patience. Sometimes there'll be a little bit of a, a change as we get more insight from more study. And I'm studying along with doing this exegesis. I'm studying quite a few remarkable commentaries on Romans, one of which I may mention tonight. So let's take a couple of moments of silent adjustment, prepare for tonight's message. Father, as the psalmist prayed, Psalm 119.18, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your doctrine and your law. 
We thank you for this privilege. And as always, we know that the sum total of those things is the word of Christ. Grant us the grace to let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts plenteously. And may it result in wisdom in all the facets of our life to your glory. We ask this in his name. Amen. Tonight I'm going to speak on the general topic of the implications of this phrase, Paul, a slave. The implications of the phrase in Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave. And this will no doubt carry into more than one message. Paul, Romans 1.1, as a slave of Messiah Jesus, is a phrase that fans out like a flame in the wind throughout the epistle of Romans in very significant ways. First, his readers in Rome would have been struck with Paul's self-identification because there were tens of thousands, and that's no exaggeration at all, tens of thousands of slaves throughout the Roman Empire at the time of the writing of this epistle. In Rome itself, the urban center of the world at the time, there were thousands of people, maybe even into the tens of thousands, who were called slaves of Caesar, specifically slaves of Caesar. In fact, in Romans 16, which we're going to address a little bit later on tonight, after Paul greets the church that meets in the home of Prisca and Aquila, he greets four other churches. This is extremely important to the interpretation of Romans. It's not just bits of information. Four other churches in Rome. Now, there's a student scholar, really, named Robert Jewett, J-E-W-E-T-T, who studied Romans for about 26 years and then six more years to do the commentary that I'm studying with him right now, among others, called the Shorter Commentary on Romans. Robert Jewett really did his homework on Romans, and he studied this epistle assiduously then for decades. On page four of his short commentary, he writes the following. He said, in my exegesis of Romans 16, 3 through 16, a case is made that these two groups, speaking of those belonging to Aristobulus in verse 10 of Romans 16, two groups, one of those belonging to Aristobulus, Romans 16.10, and, quote, those belonging to Narcissus, or Narcissus, the Latinized phrase, in 16.11, are parts of the imperial bureaucracy, probably meeting in the building where they work. Now, he has a lot of evidence to support this and a lot of other studies that have supported this. He calls them cells or churches as the cells of churches. Two other cells, he says. So we have this. We have the church that meets in the home of Aquila and Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila. We have two other cells or churches that are part of the imperial bureaucracy. Therefore, they would be known as imperial slaves of Caesar. And they work in the vast bureaucracy of the Roman Empire. 
and they would be in the home or the household, generally speaking, of Aristobulus, who was probably a grandson of Herod the Great, and those belonging to Narcissus now, or Narcissus. Narcissus and Aristobulus aren't necessarily believers, but they are Roman imperial bureaucrats who allow for the worship of Jesus Christ in their homes. Two other cells, then, are identified, or local churches, we could say, in Romans 16.14 and 16.15. And Jewett calls them tenement churches because it's very likely, if not just virtually certain, that they met in buildings in the slums of Rome, essentially, and they were part of the slaves. These people would have read Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, and said, hey, this guy's one of us. And they really would have had an appreciation for it for many reasons. And I'm going to explore both, both tonight and tomorrow night if we have time and if the Lord is willing to do this and to understand this background. And so these other cells are Romans 16, 14, and 15, tenement churches meeting most likely in tenement buildings in the urban areas of Rome itself. Again, according to Jewett, with help from Peter Lamp's book, that's, P-E, that's Peter L-A-M-P-E. I'm saying these because all these books I mentioned are worth getting if you're interested. And I, I know that most of us can't afford these, all of them. But Peter Lamp's book called From Paul to Valentinus, The Christians in the City of Rome of the First Three Centuries. In his book, he said that these are not house churches mentioned in 1614 and 15, but tenement churches. So that's Peter Lamp's vocabulary. In Jewett's education, educated views, these four cells consisted, and I'm quoting him now, four cells consisted of ent- entirely of the urban underclass, primarily slaves and poor freedmen and women. Some, sometimes they are freed slaves, but the They don't get much of a a bump, societally speaking, by being freed in many cases. So he reckons that they must have met in slum buildings, what we would call slum buildings today. So one can vividly imagine this epistle being read, and they were. The epistles were read. Some people could read them. Some of the Jewish Christians and some of the educated Gentile Christians could read the epistle, but it was generally read to the audiences of these churches. And it's possible that Tertius, who was one of the people that Paul dictated to, or Phoebe did the, did the reading with sometimes imitating Paul's very inflections of voice, tone of voice, dogmatism where it was needed, gentleness where it was needed. And so these... Jewett, I think, rightly reckons that these churches met in tenement buildings. So one can vividly imagine this epistle being read in those churches and met with enthusiasm by the hearers, especially given that the writer was a slave, like one of them, but also not like one of them, because he's not a slave of Caesar. He's a slave of Messiah, Jesus. There's already a tension here between just who is the king here. Caesar claimed universal dominion. 
but so does Messiah Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it should be re-emphasized that within this class of slaves in Rome, there were people who were called imperial slaves, slaves of the emperor. And this is greatly heartening to me because for years I've been interpreting Paul as calling himself a slave, that we should say that that's an imperial slave. Imperial slaves to the emperor were a special class. Paul's readers in Rome would know that the slaves of Caesar could rise socially and politically to great prominence in the Roman Empire. In fact, the Praetorian Guard, who also would have considered themselves imperial slaves of Caesar, became more influential in Rome than the Caesar at certain times in history. And, in fact, it was the Praetorian who surrounded Nero and kind of induced him to take his own life. Nero was in rule at the present time, and Nero's thing at the present time when Paul wrote this epistle was to reinvigorate the uh, Augustus Caesar and his gospel. It was called a gospel, Evangelion, actually. And that was that the Caesars are deified, they are God, they have a universal dominion, they bring universal peace and universal salvation to the whole of the world. And Nero was reinstituting that Augustan gospel. So you can imagine the impact of Romans on this whole thing. And we will imagine it and we'll see how this does have impact, even to our day, on the arrogance of nations in our own time. and the arrogance of rulers of this world. So the status of an imperial slave could lead to great promotion. So it would not be strange to the readers or the auditors of Romans the Epistle to connect slave with apostle. It seems like a leap to us, but slave and apostle in Romans 1.1. For a slave of Caesar could also function in the high position of ambassador, emissary, or herald of the king. So here, we may do well to get right down to the business of exegesis. Let's go to Romans 16, 7 and following. In Romans 16, 7, and we've already talked about this a little bit last week, Paul addressed two people named Andronicus and Junia. We explored the likelihood that they may have been a couple, married couple, with the status of apostle or apostles and that they were prominent among the apostles. And he calls them, quote, my fellow countrymen and fellow prisoners. Here we have another indication of Paul, a self-identification, slave, prisoner. Not many mighty are called, not many noble not many highborn respond to the word of the cross. My fellow countrymen and fellow prisoners, and I exaggerate a little bit by calling them cellmates. We don't know if they were in prison at the same time as Paul, but it's quite possible. So they would have been cellmates or cellies, as they're called, who are outstanding among the apostles. And this phrase we didn't really hit. And who were in Christ 
before I was. Paul, of course, is deferring in honor to them, respecting their long time being in Christ more than him. He's not a dictator. He's not a man who lords it over people with his so-called authority. Because before he receives apostleship, he receives grace. Not only does Romans, the epistle, speak to slaves, but also to cellmates of Paul, to people who were acquainted with being in Roman prisons, in an incarceral or a carceral environment, in jail. Paul seems as eager to identify himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is to refer to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. If you study throughout the rest of his epistles, such as Ephesians 3.1, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, or of Christ Jesus. Same in Ephesians 4.1, where he hammers it home again, where he's actually writing from a prison in Asia Minor to a church in Laodicea, the epistle which we now know as Ephesians. Philemon, when he writes to Philemon, which is a personal letter that accompanies his letter to Colossae, when he writes to Philemon, a one-chapter letter, he mentions himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ in Philemon 1.1 and 1.9. So, both slave of Messiah Jesus and prisoner of Christ Jesus connote great honor. Special honor. Moreover, he's not ashamed of speaking of other believers as his fellow prisoners, as in the case of Aristarchus. Another name. I'm dropping names tonight. I'm a name dropper. Add that to the list of Never mind. Aristarchus in Colossians 4.10, fellow prisoner of Paul. Epaphras in Philemon 1.23, fellow prisoner with Paul. In fact, I think this is notable, as he closes Ephesians, Ephesians 6.20, he curiously blends the idea of prisoner and apostle, calling himself a strange phrase an ambassador in chains. If there's anything about ambassadors that we usually think about, it's their diplomatic immunity. But here's an ambassador chained. Because apparently, his heraldic pronouncement of Jesus Christ's royal dominion clashes with others who want that dominion. We, fair, we rarely think about, in all our cheerful messages of Christmas, the slaughter of the children in Judea under age two to get to Jesus the Messiah and Rachel weeping and not consoled. That's a part of the Christmas story because Herod was very much jealous and angry and filled with resentment about some other king being heralded as expressed in a message in the stars, as expressed in the prophets. We're going to think of the reality of Christmas. Let's think of the whole 
reality of Christmas. So then, in Ephesians 6.20, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. On top of this, in the book of Acts, he's called the prisoner Paul. Simply, the prisoner Paul. Acts 23.18. And that can be compared to Acts 25.14 and 25.27. So as Ephesians ends with Paul's self-reference as an ambassador in chains... So at the end of Acts, Luke records Paul as saying to a group of fellow Jews, he's under house arrest now at the end of Acts. He's under arrest, but he has his own rented house. And for two years, he has the most magnificent time receiving every visitor, receiving groups and cells and local church assembly people and Jews and Gentiles and barbarians, anybody with questions. And he preaches two things, which is really one thing the kingdom of God, and all about Jesus Christ. Last verse of Acts 28, 31. But he's under house arrest. I love what he said to a group of Jews whose response to his message was to turn to an almost violent argument amongst themselves. But he says, I was made a prisoner in Jerusalem and hand it over to the Romans. Now let's see, who else had that experience? Made a prisoner in Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane and handed over to the Romans, Pilate, to be crucified. Talk about identification with Jesus Christ. Acts twenty-eight seventeen. No wonder Paul could say, I carry about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in my mortal body. So indeed, in the final verses of Acts, he's portrayed as being under house arrest, receiving all that came to him. And I love the way Luke writes this, quote, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching all about the Lord Jesus Christ with complete audacity. Boldness is used, but the word audacity is better here. With complete audacity. And without hindrance, Acts 28, 30 to 31. So here we can perhaps hear an echo from the pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. See if you hear echoes of this in Romans 1, 3 and 4, for example. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the seed of David. According to my gospel, reverberations in Romans 2.16, reverberations in Romans 16.25 and 26. According to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, he said, even to the extent of being chained in prison. But the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not chained. Do what you will to the messenger. The word of God is not chained. I like to call this as the end of the year, same thing I call it at the beginning of the year, the unchained gospel. 
So we're reminded here of Paul's expansion on the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18-31, in which he remarks that among the gospel recipients, or those that are called, he says, not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. That's 1 Corinthians one twenty six Holman Christian Standard Bible. Not many, however, doesn't mean nobody, doesn't mean none, however, for there were in Rome a few noble and powerful who were also among the called. That's the way it always is in every generation. The majority are not noble-born, high intellect, all the rest of it that are called, but there are a few that may be. The last phrase regarding Andronicus and Junia is therefore quite captivating. Get back to Romans 16 and to continue what at least has begun as a pincer movement going from the pole on the left of Romans 1 and then the pole on the right, Romans 16, and squeezing toward the center. We have this phrase again, an intriguing phrase, captivating phrase, if we're going to use the language It goes along with our prison analogy. They were in Christ, he says, before I was. I say this is a captivating phrase because we learn from Romans 5 that there is a real sense that all the human race is now in Christ and no longer in Adam. There is that sense already. Moreover, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, If one died, and he did, if one, Christ, died for all, then all died. All died. Therefore, in that sense, there's none left alive in Adam. And when Christ rose, in that one sense, all are in Christ. All are in Christ in one real sense and no longer in Adam. Now, this cannot be denied however hard you may try. However, there's also a sense in which a person or persons can be in Christ before other persons are in Christ. So we have here another sense. We have a double-edged sword of the Word of God operative here. Historically speaking, Paul is speaking about a couple. He said, they were in Christ before I was. He's also calling, of course, for respect of them in that regard, which may imply that maybe they weren't respected for one reason or another. But they were in Christ before Paul. So what is it, what is it all about here, then? In Romans sixteen seven, the verb ginomai is the perfect active participle form in its perfect pact. Passive, or that is perfect active participle form. It means that they came to be or even were born into Christ before Paul. Some translations interpret this to mean that they became Christians before Paul. That's fair, I guess. Others that they trusted or believed in Christ before Paul, or that they were engrafted into Christ before Paul was. And it seems that though all are in Christ in one universal sense, 
that there's a definite apocalyptic moment, I call it, an apocalyptic moment when each person is specifically incorporated into Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. So it is certain that in Adam all dies, so in Christ all will be made alive in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. However, it's also a biblical truth that individuals are incorporated into Christ and made aware of it by the Spirit who, according to Romans 8, 16, bears witness with their spirits that they are the children of God. Some would say that the incorporation of a person into Christ occurs on the occasion of baptism by immersion into water. Others would say it was upon believing or trusting in Jesus. Paul would say that it occurs at the moment when God is pleased to reveal his son to a person. In Galatians 1.15. At this time, faith is evoked or ignited, but it is when God is pleased to do so, Galatians 1.12. So one may say, yes, but that was Paul's unique case, that Paul was so-called saved or called or incorporated into Christ when God was pleased to reveal his son in, in him. You say, that's Paul's unique case, and you could say that if you want to, and I would say, true. But according to 1 Timothy 1.15 to 16, Paul was, quote, an example of those who would believe into eternal life after him. So there is a moment. For us, it's an apocalyptic moment. It's a revelational moment when we are in Christ. And at that moment, yes, faith is ignited, a gift. It, we are saved by grace and through faith, but that's not of ourselves. None of it's of ourselves. The salvation is not of ourselves because salvation is of the Lord. The grace is not of ourselves because it's the grace of God. And the faith does not originate with ourselves. Otherwise, it would be a work and we would be able to boast. The faith is the gift of God. It's evoked by the message. And the message is about Christ. So there is a moment in your life and in my life when we were incorporated into Christ. In fact, we don't even know we're a sinner And we don't even know our sinful condition until we're already incorporated in Christ and see it from retrospective. You can do all the preaching you want at people outside of Christ to tell them how bad of a sinner they are, and they might even agree just to get you off their back. But they won't see it, not until they're in Christ, and see it in retrospect. But in any case, and this is something that I'm only introducing tonight, and I think we're going to have to deal with this more and more as we go through Romans. But the point I want to make now is that in any case, Paul writes with deference to his two fellow prisoners and fellow believers who were incorporated into Christ before he was. So greetings and salutations continue in Romans 16, 8. He says, greet Ampliatus, or Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. You say, what can you get from this? Well, there's a lot you can get from this little phrase. Lots of the books that I look at, Bibles I look at for notes, I always kind of spool down and look at all the translations and see if they got a note on this verse. A lot of them don't have (laughs) notes at all on this one because it 
He's just saying, say hi to Ampliatus. But that word Ampliatus is a Latinized form of the Greek word Ampliaton. And according to Gingrich's shorter lexicon, it is a common slave name. It's common as a slave name. See what I'm doing with the Pinscher movement? Romans 16. Lots of slaves being mentioned. Romans 1, a slave writes to them named Paul. So Paul calls a common slave in Rome his beloved. It's like that, I think the second verse of O Holy Night, he talks about the slave is our brother. And it's kind of like, kind of like this. Paul's calling a common slave in Rome named Ampliatus, my dear friend. They say, my beloved True, but we would say, my dear friend. So give my love to Ampliatus, my dear friend. And people would say, but Ampliatus is a slave. Exactly. This greeting, which by appearances seems bland or ordinary, is really at the heart of the matter here in Romans. To the apostle, this slave is his dear friend. So he's in good company because Jesus was ironically but rightly accused of being, quote, a friend of tax collectors. That's got to be the worst sinner on earth, isn't it? Tax collectors. And sinners, Matthew 11, 11, 19. Look at him. He's a friend of publicans or tax collectors and sinners. Look at him. Jesus would have delighted in that name tag. So this does not exalt, now, be careful here, because this is not exalting the term slave in itself, but the unlimited grace of God that befriends slaves. In fact, that befriends sinners. In fact, that rectifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5, Romans 8, 33. We should never forget that the one who was, in essence, God, God as to essence, God as to name, God as to act, God as to being in every way. We should never forget that he became a slave. Not only that he became flesh, but he chose the vocation and the function of a slave. And as a slave, he became obedient to the extent of death on a cross. And then was what? Exalted. So that at the mention of his name, every knee will bow. There's your universal dominion. Every tongue acknowledge or pledge allegiance. There is your universal response to the universal dominion of the king of kings. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In one sense, Romans involves the fanning out of Roman of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. That passage right there. In another sense, Romans is kind of an exposition on Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the rich man in his wealth or the strong man in his strength, but if anybody's going to boast, let him boast in this, that he knows me. Let him boast in the Lord, says the Lord. So we should never forget that the one who was in essence God took the form and function of a slave to be obedient to the radical extent of death on the cross to save sinners, to free the enslaved, and to let prisoners go. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to announce what? The freedom of the prisoners. Isaiah 61, 1 and following, among other things. So this is the seventh greeting in Romans 16. And it's therefore a strong implication of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Now there's a little commentary on a verse that doesn't get much press. We would pass right by. We'll say hi to Ampliatus. He's my dear friend. Okay, let's go to the next verse. No, let's not quite do that. This seventh greeting in Romans 16 has a strong implication and tells the story of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his death by crucifixion as a slave and his glorious resurrection of the dead. Listen carefully to this. His glorious resurrection from the dead by which he was revealed as king of kings, as master of all masters or lord of lords, and as the maker of all slaves into kings. Romans 5.17, we reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, Paul to the, or John to the slaves scattered throughout the Roman Empire who are now a kingdom of priests. So, Jesus Christ, God, who became a slave, died the death of a slave, crucifixion. Died the death of a criminal rebel, crucifixion. And his glorious resurrection from the dead was that by which God declared him to be his divine son, to be king of all kings, master of all masters, and maker of all slaves to be kings. That's Jesus Christ. Romans 16.9, let's keep moving. I don't want to spend the rest of my life on Romans, although I could. Give my love to Urbanus. And guess what we have here? The word is urban. I said today, blaze is in Romans. And the Holy Spirit has pointed our attention to this. Blaze, who recently went into the glorious presence of his Savior, who was a servant of Christ, and a fellow servant with us all. His last name was Urban. So if our message tonight reverberates into heaven, I would like to say, please greet Urban for us. Blaze Urban. Give my love to Urban, Urbanus, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and to Stachys, my beloved, or dear friend. According to Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, the name Urbanos in the Greek, it's O-U-R-B-A-N-O-S in the Greek. When you Latinize it, which is what they do in Rome, it's more like Urbanos. Like Paul in Greek is P-A-U-L-O-S. It's just simply U-S. And there's even a guy named Linus, L-I-N-U-S, but we'll get to him some other time. The Christmas preacher. According to Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, a very wonderful resource, the name Urbanus is simply urban. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, another precious resource, 
makes the point that the Latinized Urbanus is also a common slave name. Its article in the International, or ISBE, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the article on Urbanus also notes the existence of an inscription that was found, an archaeological find of an inscription in Rome in around 115 A.D. It was dated, actually, in what we would call Anno Domini 115. And it contained both the names Urbanus and Ampliatus on the same inscription. A.T. Robertson helpfully adds that Urbanus is a Latin adjective from the word herbs, U-R-B-S, which means city or city bread. So I say helpfully here, Paul, the A.T. Robertson helps us out here, because we have in this common slave name also a suggestion that the, many of the slaves, if not all of the slaves that Paul addresses in Rome, were urban residents of Rome. And Robertson is also helpful with the name Stachys, S-T-A-C-H-Y-S, noting that it means, quote, a head or an ear of grain. I don't want to make much of every single name. That gets kind of almost mystical. But that he was among the members of the imperial household also, says Robertson. And not to make too much of the name, but an ear of corn suggests both resurrection and the first fruits of a vast harvest. Is that suggested intended by Paul? Who knows? Is it intended by the Spirit? I don't know. Romans 16, greet Apelles. Some say that's a Jewish name. So we have a mix here, Greek and Jews, slaves and non-slaves. But in Christ, there's neither slave nor free. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. In Christ, there's neither high-born or low-born. Christ is neither Jew nor Greek, nor barbarian. Who are the barbarians? Well, among other people, they are the people in Spain that Paul intends to get to with the gospel. That's a big part of this interpretation, too. Greet Apelles, tested and approved. The word dokimos is used here for tested and approved in Christ. Dokimos. That's also a key New Testament word. Tested and approved in Christ. And then he says, greetings to those of the household of. That's not in there. It's in the modern Greek text of the household of. And it means of, but it simply is written of Aristobulus. Now, reaching back to Romans 14, 18 from this poll in Romans 16, we read that anyone who serves Christ in the way of the kingdom of God not by what one eats or drinks, but in righteousness, joy, and, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who pre- serves Christ in that way is, quote, pleasing to God and approved by men. Reaching back further, we just hit Romans 14, 17, and 18, really. Romans 4, 5, 4, Paul speaks of the proven character, a related word, dokime, sometimes translated experience. But this isn't really Jimi Hendrix here. Are you experienced? Never mind. 
I realize talking about songs from the 60s to young people now is like my father talking about songs of the 20s to me when I was young. So I, I, sorry for that. But anyways, reaching back to Romans 5.4, Paul speaks of the, quote, proven character that comes from perseverance. And we know that perseverance is from the Lord himself. So whether Apelles is approved by some saints in Rome or not, Paul says he's surely pleasing to God and approved by men, and Paul could say, including me. He's my friend. See, there's a lot of this going around. Well, this guy is this, and this person is weak in faith, says one of the groups, one of the churches, one of the cells. Well, that group over there that meets in their house or in that tenement building, they are weak in faith. We're strong in faith. So they tended to look down on them for different reasons. And that means slaves look down on others and others look down on slaves. Nobody gets away with anything in this. This isn't a Marxist treatment of the working, man, working class hero. Although there is that. There is the working class hero, of course. But... Paul says, anybody who serves like he does and is approved, he's approved by God, he's pleasing to God, and he's approved to me. So whether he's approved by some saints in Rome or not, Paul says he's surely pleasing to God and approved by men, including the apostle himself. Then he says, those of Aristobulus. And we should supply the word, those of the household of Aristobulus. Now, the way I used to look at it is Aristobulus has a home and he has a household or a family, but that's not what the case is here. Aristobulus was a slaveholder, and he had a household in which there were slaves. And so in Aristobulus's household, there were some household slaves that Paul greets. More slaves. Those of the household of Aristobulus are not of the house church of someone named Aristobulus. Rather, they are slaves in the household of Aristobulus, who may have been, according to one source, the grandson of Herod the Great himself. And this squares, once again, with Jewett's account that we started with, that those belonging to Aristobulus in 1610 and those belonging to Narcissus or Narcissus in the Latinized form in 1611 are parts of the imperial bureaucracy as Paul elsewhere declares, and this is the important thing that I'm going to close on tonight. Throughout these greetings, Paul is revealing the prudent diplomacy of an ambassador of peace and of reconciliation among the saints in Rome. He's a peacemaker among the fractured churches in Rome. He's a an ambassador of peace, a preacher of reconciliation. He has a word of reconciliation. Sometimes the word of reconciliation has to reconcile parties in Christ as well as parties outside of Christ to Christ. And that's what he's doing in Romans because, you see, if he gets all these fractured, fragmented, fighting, sometimes even hating and despising, as Romans 14 indicates, why should you despise your brother for the sake of diet. Despise him. And why should you judge your brother 
for this or that because he is free to eat. He's an omnivore. That means he eats everything on the table. He eats the steak and the vegetables and the potatoes and the gravy and the pie and guzzles the wine. Well, we only eat vegetables and we are vegans. Nothing wrong with that. We're vegetarians. Nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong with the conclusion that many of them reach. We're better than you. Well, are you? Then let's go to Arby's together. They have the meats. Now, I make my confession tonight as being omnivorous. Carnivorous, omnivorous. But I respect those of you that only eat vegetables. I don't get you. No, I'm only kidding. Now then. You see, if you're really, really healthy and you treat your body perfectly and you're a perfect health nut, you don't pay any attention to the gospel, but you pay attention to your little health. You know what you might do? You might even outlive your mind. By about 10 years. So your body's still clicking along, but you don't know what year, what date, or where you are, or who you are, or who your son is. So I want, my, my goal is, and I'm not again, you see, that is a very, that's where our compassion has to come. That has to be directed toward, the, there's a lot of people that have outlived their minds. Their bodies have outlived their minds. There has to be love and compassion toward them. So I'm not in any way slighting, or, but I kind of have a goal. I'm, my prayer is to God is, let my body and my mind go together. <laughs> well, anyways, it's my, the way that I accomplish this is being omnivorous. But that's, don't pay attention to any advice there. So then, see, if you got some, I did so much research today that I got to just loosen up just a little bit. So sorry about that. But throughout these greetings, I think the desired effect, and I think Jewett is right about this. I think another scholar is right about this named Paul S. Menir, who wrote The Purpose of Paul, a wonderful commentary. I believe they're right about the fact that if you bring a unity through humility to the churches there, you're going to have a unit integrity that will be a tremendous boost to the mission of the gospel. The strongest impetus to missions is not the money given for missions, is not prayer given to missions, but the unit integrity of the saints. Paul makes it very clear. He doesn't hide his purpose. He's got kind of a purpose that might even be considered mercenary by some, but it isn't at all. He's writing to Rome. He knows he's coming through Rome to go to Spain, and Spain ends a tremendous kind of crescent that Paul says he began the gospel in Jerusalem and he preached it all the way to Illyricum, which is way up in Eastern Europe somewhere. And that is pretty much covers the civilized world that is in his time. And he said, to finish my goal to preach the gospel to all the nations and to preach it where it's not been heard before, I want to get to Spain in Romans 15, 28. 
I want to get to Spain, and I'm going to preach the gospel. You see, because in Romans 1, 14 and 15, I am a debtor. I owe a debt, not only to Jews and Greeks or Greco-Romans, but to those whom the Jews and the Greco-Romans consider to be barbarians. And that would include the Spanish mission. So Paul doesn't want to go to Rome and on his way to Spain and find a group of shattered cells and churches fighting and biting and devouring each other. He wants to have a unified church because he's plainly seeking logistical and prayerful support and tactical support and maybe even people that will join him on his mission to Spain. And so throughout these greetings, so there is this eminently practical thing in Romans that Paul's working for here. There is, for those of you that like to be down to earth and practical, there is that in Paul. There is that in his purpose. And so throughout these greetings, Paul is revealing the prudent diplomacy of an ambassador of peace among the saints. The desired effect for Paul is that of unity or what I better like to call unit integrity, which in turn will mean significant support for his Spanish mission. He's not hiding that purpose there. When he says, I want to come to Rome and bear some fruit or receive some fruit from you, he's not saying, I'm going to preach the gospel and then have you guys get saved. He's talking about a fruit of their generosity and support for him so that he can finish the proclamation of the gospel to Spain. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, somebody said, that's what the preacher's always doing. They're always after money. And it see, even Paul the apostle, that's what he wanted. Well, he wanted, yeah, he wanted logistical support. But you don't get that from a bunch of people fighting and biting and devouring in each other. And in other words, in the larger purpose, the gospel does not advance through a shattered church made up of 370 denominations. And there's nothing wrong with denominations unless they are little parties and cells that we celebrate in order to judge other people that aren't part of our denomination or our affiliation or our local church. So here's the point. The desired effect for Paul is that of unity, which in turn will mean significant support, logistical and tactical, for the Spanish mission. Romans 15, 28. Unit integrity among believers in Christ means maximum momentum for the advancement of the gospel. There's the principle I got from this. Unit integrity among believers in Christ means maximum momentum for the advancement of the gospel. As Paul elsewhere declares, remember Philippians at the farm. He says, conduct yourselves as citizen soldiers of Christ, advancing shoulder to shoulder the gospel, not being afraid or intimidated by your adversaries. It's a march forward, shoulder to shoulder, a phalanx, and I always think of Tetelestai Church as a phalanx of advancing soldiers, citizens of heaven, soldiers of Christ. 
Unit integrity among believers in Christ means maximum momentum for the advancement of the gospel, as Paul elsewhere declares. It's also more likely, if the church is unified, that they'll have the right gospel to preach when they get to the mission field, which isn't to civilize the pagan. You look around you, we have civilization. Who wants to bring that to people? Give me a loincloth and spear to catch fish with rather than a tux and arrogance. Or to go back to the food thing, the proverb writer said, I'd rather have a dish of vegetables with the people that love each other than Chateaubriand with haters. I don't know if I'll go that far. But (laughs) the best thing is Chateaubriand or meat with humble people. Wow. But then the vegetarian says, there are no humble people who eat cows. Okay. Unit integrity among believers in Christ means maximum momentum for the advancement of the gospel as Paul is intending, according to his quote of Isaiah fifty-two fifteen, to preach the gospel where it has not been heard before. As and, clo- and this will be our closing, go b- way back to John, our first endeavor at the Alamo here, our last stand. As Jesus intimated, he said the same thing, that unit integrity advances the gospel in John thirteen thirty five by saying this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Love for one another. Greet one another in love. Greet one another in this season with a holy fist bump, preferably gloved. Because the flu shot didn't work this year, in case you don't know. And there's been a terrible plague of the flu in Australia that's been devastating, if you don't know that. But my prayer is, Put a wall of fire around us. But help with a wall of fire by greeting one another with a gloved fist bump or a distant salute. Well, that's it. All right. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to delve into the word and to enjoy together a delving into the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. We know that there's so much value to be had from gathering together in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that even this gathering together tonight in unity will, in some way that we can't see or understand maybe, advance the gospel where it's never been heard before somewhere. And we thank you for this privilege. And we do, Father, thank you for the privilege as Paul thanked, to offer, and I'm not speaking as a preacher who's receiving this, I'm speaking as a preacher who also shares in the giving. We thank you for this privilege, Father, of presenting a sacrifice of substance for the advancement of the gospel. And we thank you in Christ's name for it. Amen.